Welcome to the Nine Nine Podcast. On this episode, I have a special guest who I asked to come on and chat to me about a film called Meet Me in the Bathroom. You may have heard about it, you may have seen it. A documentary about the New York City music scene of the early 2000s. I said, come and chat to me about Meet Me in the Bathroom. And he said, I'll come and meet you in your gaff. <laughs> it's Dave Hanratty. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Uh, that was an, uh, it's an honor, by the way. It's an honor. That was a hell of an intro. Uh, you caught me off guard. I did, yes. Yeah, Jesus. That's, that's, that was my intention. You were, you, were, you were sitting in front of me. Yeah. Not just in it's my ear. Well, I, I insisted on doing this in person to be really awkward. Yeah, I mean, this is the first in-person podcast I have done in <laughs> two years or something. Over two years. No, no. Yes, two years. Probably 2021 was probably the last time I did one. Yeah. Was that with Andrea or was that with a different person? Myself and Andrea and Denise Chyla and God knows and all did it. That was a, fucking ages. Am I like curse? That, that cool? Yes. That was ages. You know, ago. you. I think you've heard the podcast before. It's it's a courtesy <laughs> thing, you know. Like, yeah. And also, you know, like you know, it's it's the thing of like not being on radio, which I still can't believe it's never happened. <laughs> it's the worst, right? You just like, know. You just intrinsically know. Even on television, like I mean, like that's the that's the one where you're like, do not yeah. do not curse. <laughs> don't say anything bad. Don't say anything weird that you don't actually feel. That's, that's actually worse. Yeah. That is the worst thing about like just been on tv i think Dude, the two times i've been honest <laughs> yeah like i do it all the time like i'm a presenter on on virgin media news no i'm not um but uh you could be uh, no if, I if you put not. your mind to it you know? i was on that was what i was doing and i was talking about lockdown last time i was on with matt cooper it's, it's and my it's show. just yeah you know you know you do the radio all the time the best best like radio guesting is when you just feel relaxed and somebody isn't going Kicking yeah. at you, yeah. Saying, no, Come it's, on, it's fast paced. I say as like a contributor who's on every now and then on Today FM or RT, but like it's all very sporadic. I do love doing it, but yeah, it is that thing of it's so different from from this because we're already just chatting. But yeah, like you have to hit marks and hit beats, and you know, yeah. There's there's time limits and all that stuff. Um, there's there's an art to that as well, the production art to that in radio. Uh, I used to love when I had a show on TXFM, actually just hitting the mark for the news because you have to like give a certain amount of time. And you have to fade down a song in order to get the the song in to get the get the hit the mark so you get in the ads and all that stuff. So I had one recently. I was on time. I was on Arena and Sean Rocks, who's like the greatest, most gregarious, cool guy. Uh, I was reviewing a show and he was very much like he's like and Dave's got you know fourteen minutes to get through this with me and I'm sure he's gonna and I was like all right cool weird proviso <laughs> but at the end of it he was like he's like and Dave's wrapped up with just you know he's like with with thirty seconds spare and I thank him for it oh, and I went man. you're very welcome and I realized <laughs> oh fuck I've probably like crashed over like I shouldn't have said anything there yeah yeah and I, when I went to listen when they uploaded I was like please 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 and it was magic it worked perfectly <laughs> but you don't know that you know and you're just yeah. like it's that thing where you're like. When they sign you off, you're just like, do I do I say anything? Do I just nod? It's like your inner politeness is like, thanks, yeah. whoever you are. Yeah, and then we never make it in cool New York bands. I think is what I'm trying to get yeah. at here. Well, that's it. That's what. We're, so that's what we're going to talk about. And funny enough, there's a lot of interviews in this film. Uh, Meet me in the bathroom. So, um, okay. So briefly, what is Meet me in the bathroom? Some of the Nile or Nine Discord crew went uh, to see it over the weekend in the Lighthouse Cinema. Thanks to the Lighthouse for sorting that out for us. So Meet Me in the Bathroom is a film about music that means a lot to a lot of people of our age group. Um, we're talking The Strokes, Interpol, Yeah, Yeah, Yes, um, LCD Sound System. They're the main bands that are in this. It's based on a book uh, of the same name by Lizzie Goodman, Meet Me in the Bathroom, uh, who is actually apparently uh, making a um, drama series about this now. 
<laughs> so, which might explain her lack of involvement with this directly. Yeah. yeah. So getting a lot of mileage out of it. Uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom is directed by Will Lovelace and Dylan Sutherland, who um, are responsible for LCD Sound System, Shut Up and Play the Hits, the Madison Square Garden um, film, live film. Is that good, by the way? It's great. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Oh, God. I actually was looking, during the week, I looked at, I love that gig so much because... The reason I love it is because, okay, I love LCD. We'll get into that anyway. But um, I love the set that they've done because it for that, like, obviously it was supposed to be their last ever boo-hoo. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, Snails did the same thing. It's like, like two it's and a half hours. Yeah. You know, it's two and a <laughs> half hours. And it's like the first hour is like, do you remember they did that Nike mix? Yes. 45, 33. It was kind of good. It was great. Yeah, yeah. But they play it live, most of it. And you're like, wow, okay. <laughs> what a waste. Yeah. But no, it's great. It is really good. And uh, Reggie Watts comes out and does bits with them. And okay, right. It's really cool. Yeah. Obviously, cancelled now, but Arcade Fire in it. <laughs> right, they're not that cancelled, though. I keep no, seeing. I don't think. I, I There's actually no don't such think thing as cancelled, Carl. There's not. Sure. And I also, of course, I, as you know, I interviewed Win Butler, but two weeks before <laughs> those allegations came out. And. Boy, did I take that interview tweet down pretty fast. Yeah, well, I mean... I had no idea. Who did? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, well, it happens. Sometimes you talk to people and they do bad things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Meet Me in the Bathroom, <clears throat> it is really a document of that time from the early 2000s to probably 2010, 2008, 20, 2008, 2009 or so. Let's take a bit from the Meet Me in the Bathroom trailer as context. What's more important, good sound or a good time? Sounding good, having a good time. I remember thinking maybe New York isn't the kind of city anymore that produces iconic bands. The Strokes launched a fireball. Started playing New York a year ago. We've been tearing stuff up. A lot of people quit their jobs and just were like, I'm going to play music full time. We felt like we were going to take over the world. People went crazy for it. Suddenly, there were bands everywhere. It all happened so fast. <laughs> right, right, team. Go team. Julian was telling me how scared he was. Things were never going to be normal for him again. Being a woman fronting a rock band, I was sensationalized. There was a lot of tension in the studio. He said, you really don't want people to hear this. But I've lived in fear my whole life, and I had nothing to lose. You could feel the love from the community. You could fail, and it didn't matter. It was about freedom. It became our home. Those years were the big bang of my life. You guys want to be in a documentary? There's a lot to get through here. Um, yeah, the directors also were responsible for the Blur film, No Distance Left to Run as well. Or no Distance to Run. Have you seen that? I have not, no. Mm-hmm. I'm actually, I, I need to get, I need to cop ago. on and watch more music documentaries because I went through a, a phase where I watched loads of them and then I just, for some reason, became allergic to them. I think it is easy to do that. I think mm-hmm. I have the same feeling with uh, biopics about... Um, uh, musicians, they all follow the same beat. I mean, obviously, have you seen Elvis? You've seen I Elvis? loved Elvis. Yeah, I thought yeah. it was great. Yeah, I mean, um, I'd forgotten how um, batshit crazy uh, Baz Luhrmann is at all times. <laughs> um, but other than that, I don't know. Yeah, there's just like there's, there's certain, a formula. Yeah. yeah, there's a formula. So it's formulaic. So 
I mean, I guess most things, most uh, documentaries and music documentaries about scenes, um, I think it maybe has uh, a bit more license to do something interesting because you are certainly leaving things out and you're certainly focusing on certain narratives. Um, and I think overall, I think this is quite a nice nostalgic film about that scene. It obviously doesn't go as deep into the book. The book is told as an oral history. It has many, many more pages and people and uh, too many pages, I would say. Too many pages. I like the book, but it's fucking, it's crazy over long. And the whole thing, like, let me get this out of the way right away. I think it's a really good book. I think it's great that it's out there. It's very entertaining. And my brain has been completely destroyed by, you know, YouTube and such and such. And like, I used to love reading books when I was a kid. And now I can't read them anymore. So I do appreciate a good oral history, whether it's the Wire mm. oral history or the Saturday Night Live one or this one. It's great to just kind of pick up and put down. But man, I was like, when's this going to end? And also, I'm sorry, but like, as as enviable as Lizzie Goodman's life clearly has been, I don't think she and her blogger friends are anywhere near as important as, say, The Strokes, which is what it comes across as. So I was like, what the fuck? Well, it's their perspective. I guess that's the thing. Um, egotistical. That's, I saw, that's what I say. I, I'm not calling this film egotistical because you just said that. <laughs> no, um, the, book, the book. No, no. This is a film. I, I watched a film about the doc, uh, documentary about the Limerick music scene called Out of Place recently in A4 Sound. And it reminded me that there's no way that you can really encapsulate a single city or places scene because everything is a perspective mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. the filmmakers who made this one uh, out of place. They made it during lockdown. They focused on three of their friends and their bands that they really liked. Uh, therefore, not including any stuff about the Limerick rap scene or other than God knows and, and Denise and Narrow and all that stuff. But there's lots of other stuff that they couldn't feature because, you know, feature length film. It's not going to work. So this this film takes the decision to mainly focus on uh a few different bands. Yeah, 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 The Strokes, <laughs> Ryan Adams, the villain of the piece, uh, LCD Sound System, a bit of, um, a bit, a very slight bit of TV on the radio. Yeah, not enough, right? Not enough at all. I love that band. They're phenomenal. Sorry, can I, I, I don't mean to derail anything and this is your show and I'm your hallowed guest and I'm very, very glad to be so. So I, if I slip into podcast host mode, do, please do. kick me out of the please, building. Please, please co-host. Uh, no, no, but I do want to ask you though because you use the word nostalgia and I'm just curious as to like, what is, like, obviously the New York 2001 music scene was literally thousands of miles away for both of us. Unless yeah. you weren't living there at the time, were you? I don't think no, you no, were. No, no. I've never fucking been to New York. But I'm curious, where were you at in 2001? Like, what were you listening to? Because I was a new metal kid all the way. Right. Okay, so I I had the Strokes album, This Is It, the week it came out. Wow, okay. Because there was such a buzz about him, and we I was working uh, that summer in a toy shop. <laughs> wow. A toy shop that also had a music uh, section. That sounds like the dream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a pretty good summer, actually. So I was looking after the the games and the and the music and all that stuff. Uh, sadly, no records at that time, mostly just CDs. But I remember we all ordered, there was like three or four of us in the shop who had an interest in music and we all ordered version copies of uh, This Is It by The Strokes so we could bring buy them and, uh, and a staff discount and bring hmm. them home. Um, so I, I had it from the start, but I think that was because it's an interesting perspective because like, Meet Me in the Bathroom comes from a lot of the music is actually filtered through NME magazine and yes. people like that. Yes, Q magazine as well, which I was reading yeah. at the time. Yeah, yeah. so that's where, like, I mean, in a way, there's a lot of catching up that the US was doing. There's not a lot of mentions here for some of the big US publications. Well, it says, like, like the the version presented, and is this accurate, that they, they broke the UK first, essentially, the Strokes did? I think so, because it was that time where, you yeah, know, Rough Trade signed them or something. Yeah, NME like, yeah. were looking for bands, and that's... What they were they were looking for American bands because the Americans, I mean, I think the film does kind of um, 
contextualize that a little bit in terms of the MTV generation. You know, your favorite Slim Biscuit. Uh, they get a dig, yeah. Blink-182 get a dig. and I, yeah. Sorry, by the moldy peaches, by the way. <laughs> I, I, let, me, let me have my moldy peaches corner here for just a second because, like, they're one of the worst bands of all time. And this documentary starts off with the moldy peaches doing their wacky shtick. And I was like, oh, God, really? Yeah. They're trying to position them. And, like, they were friends of the Strokes. They were on tour with the Strokes. And I'm sure to a lot of people, maybe some even listening right now, they could very well be your band. I think it's twee bullshit. I never, ever got it. I never, ever liked it. So for them to have the gall, Niall, <laughs> to attack my beloved Limp Bizkit and Blink-182, I was, I was very upset. But I will say, yes, I was, I was very into New Metal in 2001, but the Strokes definitely filtered through and kind of kicked that door down. My brother-in-law was a huge fan. He had the album. And I remember him like raving about the drums. And I was like, there's barely any drums on this. Because again, I'm listening to Slipknot, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, in time, I realized, wait a minute. No, it actually is as good as the hype suggests. It actually is yeah. a genuinely brilliant, brilliant album. It is brilliant. It is. It is. And you can't. Like, it's, it's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. In fairness to the Moldy Peaches, their appearance in it is because they were at the, uh, the flashpoint of all of this in a way, because they were obviously friends with Julian from The Strokes and they support uh, them on their early uh, shows. And they also contextualize Karen O. In, in yeah, yeah, as being the quiet, folky acoustic singer songwriter at, at an open mic night, who just happens to be come friends with them and then realizes, oh, actually, maybe I want to do something else. Mm-hmm, and, uh, mm-hmm. So there is, I, I, I mean, Mother Peter's music isn't for me necessarily. Kimmy Dawson and Adam Green, but um, it is interesting that a lot of this film features artists documenting themselves, like. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned this. Yeah, because it's like I, I I've had this thing happen. Whether it's this or whether it's other stuff, where you're like, it's it's almost like they knew that one day two Irishmen would sit down and have a podcast about it. Twenty three years later, like the the footage, the footage is the best part of this documentary. I will yeah, say, there's great footage. But like, what the fuck? Like, why why are James Murphy and Julian Casablancas and Carano and others filming this gorilla footage? At, yeah. you know, kind of underground shows. And I guess, you know, maybe it's just, there's something, like, you wouldn't believe it if it was in a scripted film, but no, no, this is real footage from 2001. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> I, I think now, seeing that the uh, Will Lovelace and Dylan Sullivan um, directed Shut Up and Play the Hits, which does have some documentary elements, maybe some of that is called from a later date in terms of the James Murphy stuff, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a lot of early stuff, like there's a bit of, towards the end where him and Nancy Wang are in an apartment and he's like, angrily responding on on some uh, LCD or DFA forum to somebody about like tour dates and you're like wow okay and it's like an AOL account or something like that oh it God. looks like that um, but yeah there is loads of footage even even the Moldy Peaches are at the start of the film are like come in and be the, uh, to their neighbours in their apartment block who look flustered and bewildered I thought that was frightened. their family or, yeah they're in like they're in this kind of Upper East Side like, like clearly trust fund babies or something and like a lot of these bands are rich people and some of them are very insufferable but again they make great music um, it's a scattershot enough I mean I feel like we're being scattershot but it's a scattershot enough documentary isn't it like it just kind of it just kind of is like, here's New York 2001, here are these bands that came out of nowhere and immediately they were like successful. That, yeah, that's I think it, it does a good job for me of um, kind of avoiding the hype cycle and the success train, but while still showing the what they were up to, you know, like the Strokes very much early on um, and the AES, especially uh, those two bands. Seeing, well, actually Interpol as well, all of these bands, you get to see them and they're very first beginnings when figuring out who they are, who they want to be. Um, and what I like about the way that the Strokes one is done is like, there's obviously it clearly gets bigger because the stages get bigger. 
the uh, $2 bill, MTV special, all that stuff. It's clearly bigger stages um, and that happens and that develops. And I think the the way that that um, moves along also, I think there are certain narrative beats to this that work really well. Um, 9-11. Did you think the 9-11 thing worked well as a narrative beat? I thought it was very jarring. Well, it places you, I mean, it's, it's fascinating footage. Of course it is, yeah. No doubt. But uh, it does place you in that time because the strokes came out early 2001, right? Wasn't it? And that's then, when they broke, yeah. Yeah, that was when the album they took, came out. Because like, New York City Cops was taken off the album. Yeah, in, so that's, that's what I remember yeah, because yeah. they were like, well, we can't be seen to say anything bad about the New York police because of 9-11. We so, can't say ACAB now. Yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. So, Great song, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, um, they went back to playing that again, obviously. <laughs> but, but yeah, not, sorry, 9-11 thing, because I remember, again, I mean, I don't know about you, but I remember that day very, quite very vividly. I remember, yeah. like, sitting at home in my house watching Sky News over and over again. I remember working in a supermarket that night, not quite a toy store, of course, and people were running in, like, raiding the supermarket, like, for bread and milk as if, like, this was going to come oh, to really? our... Oh, yeah. I was like, what's going on? Wow. Not a chance. But, like, I mean, again, I was, like, 17, so... But I think it's more the way in the documentary. No, no, listen, if you're covering the time period, you, you have to cover it. But there was, I thought there was a slight, slightly awkward juxtaposition with here's 9-11 happening and it's the worst thing ever. And also, hey, you know, Julian's sad about that. You know? and you <laughs> it got, was like, Paul Banks specifically. Sad-eyed Julian. Yeah, Paul Banks. Yeah, yeah they're all just like, uh, Karen, they're all very sad about it. And I'm like, I'm sure they are. But like, it's just, it's a bit like, I don't know if the slight ennui of some of these about to be megastars is quite the same. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say... Terrorist attack on New York City? Yeah, like, yeah. No, it's not. But it is, I think it is interesting to see some, uh, like, Paul Banks in the wreckage in a way, or, like, sure. covered in ash. That is a around. hell of a shot, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. he's on. He's literally on the streets, like, helping people or, or trying to, like, clean up. He, yeah. He's not. He's just looking at things, I think. Uh, <laughs> he's uh, like, uh, I'm pick, we're picking up papers, and he's just kind of yeah. very glibly, like, looking for, for stuff that fell. Or I didn't realise how low his self-esteem was, by the way. Yeah. Do you know what? In general. They come across as complete fucking nerds. They do, yeah. Don't they? They're not like, cool. At the start, they're like, they look like the spotty teenagers who want to be part of the crew and they don't know how to get into it. And then that's really underscored when they book a tour in, in England, in the UK, and they book it, what, Easter? And no one no one turns up for any of the shows. All the student towns are closed, yeah. basically. Yeah, they're they all play home. a metal festival. Yeah. It's that was so hilarious. funny. Yeah, yeah. And then people are like, you know, he said the question everyone kept asking us is, do you guys know the strokes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's brutal. But he says that he was like, he was working in, in like stuffing envelopes in a, in a university and he wanted to be part of the scene that uh, where the strokes were, where they were showing like the coolest guys with the coolest songs. So he was very literally coming from I want to be part of that scene it is interesting as well they, they look miserable a lot of the time but they were clearly um, fractured in a weird way because yeah. I mean, like, obviously like you know Carlos D their bass player is there who eventually would leave the band at a certain point during their run but you can see right away he's a he's a square peg in a round hole or something and yeah. they're like, when he plays, he's unbelievable, but he's a party animal and he's clearly like, and he looks like he's in the Misfits or something. Like he wears makeup and stuff and yeah. they're all kind of sharp suited. When they're being interviewed uh, and the most interesting thing about the band is the holster that he's wearing. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's wearing a gun holster yeah. with no gun. But he, yeah, but he dresses like a character from like a Robert Rodriguez movie or something. Yeah. Uh, and like Interpol are cool. Like, I mean, like they, they do still have that kind of level of, yeah, like it's hard to, it's hard to see Paul Banks as this kind of like, uh, shy, you know, I guess, but I guess they're all, aren't they all? Julian Casablanca is one of the worst interviewees ever. And I should know, I interviewed him. Yeah, yeah, so you have. it didn't go great. <laughs> it was all right. Well, before you get to that, um, just about Carlos D. Um, I mean, obviously he left the band in 2010, shortly after the uh, end of this film. 
Uh, and he said, and three months after Carlos Dengler left Interpol, the band revealed he actually disliked playing his bass guitar. <laughs> so apparently he didn't want to play it at all. He's also super good at it, of course, which is yeah. a wonderful contradiction. I know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, when asked if the band missed Dengler during a 2022 Reddit AMA, Banks stated he was difficult, but not too difficult. Total genius, TBH. So that's <laughs> it, they, they do still him. get asked about it. And in fact, I not 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 to be Mister. Well, I interviewed. I, I interviewed. I, I when I watched our interview, I was like, oh, I was like, I've actually interviewed a couple of these people, which is weird here and there. Not that many, but I did interview. Um, why is his name escaping me? I fucking interviewed him. Interpol's uh, Sam Fogarino. The other one. Oh, Daniel oh, Kessler. Daniel Kessler. I can't believe I forgot his name. That's so embarrassing. Dan, the incredibly sharp suited Daniel <laughs> Kessler. I interviewed him for a side project. He's called Big Noble. For Drowned in Sound years ago, and I haven't heard of that side project before or since. He was cool, it was a phone call, but I think I got a Carlos question in, even though I'm like, I know this is old ground, but people keep asking you. I, I forget what I asked, but like... People keep asking me to ask you. One of those things, yeah, you catch it that way where you're like, are you sick of being asked about such and such? But like, for some reason, the Interpol story is has, has that weird... Because like, I guess I like Interpol, I do. I think they're a good band, but I guess they're a bit boring. First two albums, great. Uh, yeah. Even the first one, though, drags a bit. Antics is brilliant. Oh, the first one, Turn On The Bright Lights is, is the one. It does, uh, it does. Watch some of the footage, actually. Most of the footage in this film is brilliant. It is, yeah. But the the some of the Interpol stuff at the start is a bit dour. <laughs> like, they're kind of a dour band. Yeah, yeah, they like, are. Unless they have a, like, a, a decent stage set up and it just, sometimes it just feels a bit like, oh, Lord. Pedestrian, yeah. I saw yeah. them at Picnic and they were terrible. I saw them at the Olympia and they were amazing. So it's that kind of thing. I think I last saw them probably 2000 four or five or something like that. Oh, okay, okay. At Oxygen, like Antics had come out. It was that time. Um, I think it was Oxygen. I think they played around that time. They've just what become like a it? solid rock band. I mean, like, I, yeah. I, like, they've got some good stuff here and there and, you know, it's fine that they're doing what they do, but it's, you know, it's it's another Interpol album. I did cringe a little bit when the, the, the whole Napster thing comes up and I was like, oh, Oh, actually, it's not. It's not the Lars uh, <laughs> Ulrich yeah, from Metallica story I was here. The same, yeah, yeah. It's it, they're actually happy enough. The people. I mean, obviously, you remember that time people could download whatever the fuck they wanted in advance because nearly everything leaked. Yeah, and uh, at that point, like I'm, I, I don't remember Anderson, but they talk about somebody coming up into them in the bar and singing the song that <laughs> they've downloaded in advance three months before the out yet, yeah. Like you just, I mean, that's a bit of cop on. You just don't do that maybe. But that was uh, quite the thing. And like Paul Banks had this look of betrayal on his face, which I really enjoyed. And he was just, yeah, he seemed more like just bewildered. And he's like, how could this possibly happen? And there's loads of that. I mean, like, I guess like that happens with the DFA stuff and, and obviously the rapture and what LCD yeah. becomes. And it's like, I guess there was just no real organization it was all one big party, unless you're on like Rough Trade or something, which I presume does have. And I'm sure, like, who knows? Maybe I'm just fucking not wildly speculating here. Maybe there were very diligent people working behind the scenes in the label side of things, but stuff really fell through the cracks, right? <laughs> all these cool people having a great time, but you're like, whenever they try to get into the business side of things, I'm like, oh yeah, that's, yeah, we have to do that as well, don't we? Yeah. Which the documentary kind of flirts out. Like, like I, I will say at this juncture, I think it's a good documentary. I don't think it was amazing. It's very yeah. surface level. I mean, it's totally nostalgic. Like, it's my nostalgia. You know yeah, what I mean? Time, like, yeah, it's yeah, that yeah. time. That's why I really like. It's an easy watch. Like, yeah, you know, you're just for like, sure. here you are. It's like an hour 49 or something. Yeah. It doesn't, like, I don't know. I mean, I find myself coming away from documentaries often being like, um, you know, like, it's, you know, once the basic premise is on the table, it's all, it's all about how strong are your interviews? How strong is your talk? And how, how strong is your, is your footage? And in this case, you know, any new interviews you get are like new audio interviews spliced in, some of which Karen knows in particular are extremely interesting and insightful yeah. and in some cases kind of alarming. Like she's very frank yeah, about Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about the yeah, yeah. Uh, they, I mean, the footage 
obviously the iconic uh, shots of her crying in the maps video is kind of uh, uh, buttresses the film. Essentially, it is the start and the end of the film. So, um, and she, it does kind of take her transformation from quiet person in the quiet singer songwriter to um, punk rock sneering, you know, front woman, female David Bowie. Yeah. Yeah. So, of. I mean, what is interesting, I think, and I, I'm glad it does cover it because she's like what she says, there was no code to what I was doing as a woman in rock at that time, which is yeah. interesting because I mean, I can think it's an interesting thing to ponder now that in around 2001, 2002, there was no you had you'd acts like the distillers, the Donnas. Yeah, not many. Courtney Love is still a thing. She does talk about dealing with the sensationalism of of uh, just you know on all the typical being a woman in rock questions. Like, yeah, and she also thought you know like paparazzi were taking crotch shots of her as yeah. well, and she said that she had to deal with things that none of her bandmates, of course, uh, Nick Zinner and Brian Chase, is, I think, is, yeah. and also her contemporaries like the Strokes. She was like they're going through a, a thing of their own, of course, but it's not what I'm going through. And she also gets into you know, she refers to herself as a halfie at one stage because she's half Korean. Yeah. And she's like, I'm not white enough for the Korean people. I'm not Korean. I'm not Asian enough for the Koreans. I'm, like, I'm this kind of hybrid person in between and I don't know where I, where I go or what I do. And she becomes this exceptional front woman. And just hearing her talk about that and the struggles, like I thought was quite the juxtaposition in the contrast with the force of nature that she is and how much she is beloved by the fans that she mm. does encounter. Like there's some people in like Scotland who are like, they're the future or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah, like, kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah it's fucking rule. And I, I do remember, I bought that album at the time and I was like, this is like nothing I've ever heard. Yeah. How it was produced, how she sounded. And also, like, I mean, Date With The Night, I think straight away you're like, well, that's an unbelievable song. But like, you know, Maps is probably the greatest song ever written. <laughs> like, I mean, it's this this it, film certainly makes the case for the most it's, important it's, song. It's Be My Baby of the, by the Renettes yeah. and it's Maps. You know, it's like, like they're just two of, they're just unbelievable. Yeah. And like, I, I, it's a song that you never tire of. It's full of such emotion. And yeah, I came away from it, like, you know, like with a kind of a, not a newfound respect for the AES, but I was like, wow, yeah, like they do rule and they did, they've had a really interesting journey and they're still going and she's done so much, you know, like whether it's, you know, the current iteration of the AES and even like, you know, the fucking immigrant song cover with Trent Reznor for the girl with dragon tattoo, that kind of nightmarish Bond theme. Uh, she's with the stuff with Danger Mouse. She's kind of like, she did an amazing thing, I think, with Michael Kunuka. She's one of those people who like, you know, can do anything. Yeah. And I wonder if she gets the, like, you know, she's clearly like revered, but like, yeah, it's just wild to see her, like, and then you see her backstage at these shows and she's just kind of curled up into a ball and she's clearly got, like, a lot of anxiety and it's, you know, it's very much the classic, I'm super shy over here, but once I'm on stage, I'm a different person. And it seems like she really had to kind of build her own uh, security, build her own kind of support system. Not that the band weren't there for her, but, like, she's clearly unmoored yeah, from I mean, everyone they, else. She says they can't relate and, and, and there's not, they don't get any blame necessarily, but... um. There's certainly some footage where you see she's angry and they're kind of looking at her going, what's wrong? Yeah. As if you're, yeah. you're being a bit mad. This um, is amazing. You should be having, yeah, yeah, all yeah, that stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there is a fair bit of that. So what do you think about the, I mean, the the, the major section, I guess, is the strokes, really, because it's the true line, the biggest, kind of the, the buzziest, hypest kind of uh, story in all of this is the strokes, right? I think it's impossible to present new information with the strokes because they've been one of the most catalogued bands out there since 2001, whether it was Enemy, whether it was Q, whether it was any American rock magazine, whether it was any television show, they were everywhere. They really, really were. It took me a while to kind of fully get on their wavelength. I liked them, certainly. But it took me a while to really be like, yeah, no, they actually are that good. Um, and I do love them now. I actually, I, the most recent album is fantastic. And I love their comeback. And I love that they're in the world and that they kind of 
you know, became friends again or whatever. Um, and like, you know, they've had a hell of a run with, with that kind of stuff. And like, it's, uh, it's, it, Albert Hammond Jr. like could very well have gone in a much different way. Um, and Ryan Adams definitely takes some of the blame for that, I think. Um, yeah, he's the, he's certainly the villain of the piece. Um, in many respects, yeah. The, you know, the, the trickster uh, who lives down the road uh, across the way with the bag of drugs and uh, I listen to your songs, Albert. I will <laughs> say, I mean, it seems Albert Hammond Jr. clearly had his own insecurities in that regard. Yeah, and he absolutely. was saying that he could like the other guys didn't care about his own music and therefore he was like, yeah, so Ryan Adams was his enabler who also happened to have a bag of heroin with him or whatever. But like, um, yeah, what, the strokes, I mean, to go back to your original question, I mean, like a lot of this as well, I mean, like if you're, if you're like you and me and lots of others who will be drawn to this documentary, it'll be, well, I know a lot of this already. I'm very familiar and I've read the fucking book and that book, to be fair, did have new information in it when it came out, Lizzie Goodman's book. There was lots of like, oh my God, wow. Julian Casablancas is being extremely forthcoming here and he's talking about stuff I didn't even know about, including the Ryan Adams stuff where he was like, you know, he's like, I told that guy I was going to kick the shit out of him if he didn't leave Albert alone kind of thing. Um, and so in that regard, it's great. That's why an oral history can be really, really good because I love, I don't know how you feel about this because like, you know, when you do, when you do interviews, I know most of you do is podcast wise, but you've done written stuff as well, of course. But I mean, like, it's that kind of weird contradiction where you know, I've interviewed XYZ, you've interviewed XYZ, but it's like, I love reading a transcript. I much yeah. prefer reading oh, a yeah. Q&A. Oh yeah, yeah. like, it, it, for example, if tomorrow it's like, Trent Reznor, new interview, I'm like, I want I want that to be a Q&A. Yeah. And therefore, when you write a Q&A as a journalist, you know, transcribing the interview that you've done, that is part of the work. But if you're like, I'll just top and tail this and here's the Q&A, I always felt like I was being lazy or something. It's got to be a narrative. Yeah. You know, but like that's... Well, certainly it's something that, uh, when writers have asked me for advice, I say don't write Q&As because you don't get a good impression of of some of your writing then. I agree you know? with that. As no. if, you're an, if you're an early writer. I fully agree with that. Yeah. But I will say that like my my own greediness is I want to kind of read every word. I, like if you're like, if you're like, I spoke to David Holmes for six hours. I'm like, I want to read the whole thing. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of it could be six hours a long time. Yeah. But you know, it's like, I, I, I just want to see what was said with little as little cleanup as possible. Um, and so I think that the book of Meet Me in the Bathroom is extremely good for that because while I'm sure, as is the New York house style, you know, this interview has been edited and condensed for clarity, although maybe not in that book because it's like 900 pages long. But I do love when you're like, let that person talk. Like, like, like I want to hear what Albert Hammond Jr. has to say about this. The film, I think, in terms of the strokes through its archive footage does a good job with that as well. But the problem with the strokes, if there is a problem with the strokes, is that they are the shyest people. They just don't fucking say anything. Yeah, they, in, and I think the under, interviews here do highlight that because you're like... Um, in the headlight stuff, like... Yeah, it's like, Nikolai, help me out here. Yeah, that <laughs> was like, hilarious. Yeah. loads of that. Like, like, what, what do you want me to say? Yeah, yeah. Like, he's been, I mean, he, they, one of the things that the film does talk about and does, you know, uh, present in terms of an important uh, story in The Strokes is the uh, the uh, his background, Julian's background, his dad... Uh, in a model agency, owned a model agency, and he was kind of co-opted into it early and then felt a bit weird about it and then didn't. And then apparently was like, I'm not going to be involved in this. But then when the band became well known, he was like, oh, this is what I didn't want. The yeah, yeah. being famous thing. But like they're rich kids him out in Switzerland at a boarding school. That's, that's how it happened. Also, I love the bit when Nardwar is interviewing them. <laughs> yeah. It's the funniest thing. I don't remember Nardwar being so snarky like in that that's way. That's kind of his thing though. But like, is he not, like it was a bit mean or something. Yeah, he's really, po- he's like, you guys met in Switzerland, right? At a, at a very expensive school. Well, and they were kind of like, uh, like looking at each other. Yeah. Uh, and we've, we've all had those interviews, I'm sure. where like Elite models, elite models. You've interviewed someone and they, and like they might not be on for whatever reason or maybe you're at fault and therefore yeah a transcript in that situation can be very difficult and you have to write around it as they say yeah. and with yeah. the strokes I'm like I found myself being like fuck okay they're giving this guy nothing 
they've just finished Room on Fire recording it. And he's like, how do you feel about the album? And like, they're kind of like, you finished it today. And that's <laughs> the like, end of that sentence. And then they're like, we don't want to let people down. And I'm like, okay. And I'm, and I'm like, okay, so I guess my opening sentence is we don't want to let people down. And I'll write a massive paragraph profiling them and I'll throw in a few because I'm only going to get like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. They, for a band that have such charisma in what they do musically and how they look and the videos and on stage to not have that in an interview situation, I think is funny, but also not uncommon. I mean, like it's not, and it's not a prerequisite. Like a rock band doesn't need to be good at interviews. It's frustrating for fucking people like you and me, and maybe a fan who wants to see a cool interview. But it is funny to be like, that's the Strokes. That's the Strokes in 2001. And they're so awkward. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> Even like uh, their manager, who somebody calls a, a little boy or a little child or something at some point, is like, has more to say a lot of the time, even the little bits that he's in. But what do you think? I mean, do you think like they are, in fact, the rock band of the last 20 years? Like, Certainly the American rock band, uh, probably. I mean, other than the Arctic Monkeys. Um, yeah, probably. Probably are. And I think and they're... You're, uh, you're beloved the 1975, of course. Um, You've mean, come around a little bit on them. Yeah, I have. And Dre's influence. Then it just makes it more awkward when he starts doing more questionable things again it's a rock star for you problematic favorites <laughs> here we go uh no but at least i mean with the strokes i think the music stands for themselves and even a few years ago I, they still feel relevant definitely because they have yeah still been they're still releasing good albums where for me interpol and the aas to a lesser extent i like some of their stuff that they've done recently but it's it's been diminishing returns for me personally um, I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to you know have a consistent level of quality. I think I think the Strokes kind of imploding helped them, if anything. Yeah, and it had to happen. Like they were set up so hard. Well, that is the bit in the film where it's like, well, you are set up to fail because the expectation is too high, and you don't sell enough records. You sell a shitload of records. What was it like? Six hundred fifty thousand copies on the second. Six hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, and they're like, that's a failure. It's supposed to be millions. Yeah, and they're like, okay. Yeah, just the way it is. But that's. <laughs> You know, in a way, we're, we don't have that anymore. We don't have that those notches anymore because there's no such thing as massive album sales anymore. So we can't have those. Even magazine markers. covers don't mean as much as they used to. Like, I mean, and again, you, I remember, like, I, you, I think about the Strokes, and I, I think about the music first, of course, but I do think about the photographs. I think about uh, the copies of Q and Enemy that I would have seen around in newsagents or in my own fucking room. You know what I mean? It's just like. It was synonymous with the time. Physical media was was so synonymous with that time. And even like getting these glimpses, MTV2, like watching music channels, you know, that was like, it's such a different thing now. Well, there's um, a shared narrative of, of, you know, limited amount of media that we had. And now it's fractured so much that you're like, well, it doesn't matter anymore. Maybe. Yeah, but. yeah. We're, we're, we're really teetering on the tire up here of like, oh, you know, back in my day. <laughs> back in my day. All this were fields. Uh, well, back in my day, um, <laughs> Uh, Courtney Love was given a 24-hour MTV live stream where she was clearly off her face and brought in um, Albert Hammond Jr. and Ryan Adams. Who were clearly off their faces. Who, other, who, who spends the, <laughs> some of the, lives, the live broadcast in bed asleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the strokes were, I guess, like turned on the television were like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty jarring, that stuff, seeing that. Um, but also, the I love that bit, like going back to what like Julian's uh, Cosmonics uncomfortableness with, uh, with fame and... These literal, like, two very famous people, Winona Ryder and Courtney Love, coming over to him and be like, come be famous with us. Come be famous with us, Julian. And he's like, no. I That's don't want so to funny. Be. And to be fair, like, you know, to give them all the peaches, they're due. It is Kimya Dawson, I think, who is regaling that anecdote. And she's yeah. kind of like, she's like, 
yeah she's like that was just the weirdest shit ever you know i didn't exist in that moment and here come these two super famous people literally saying as you just said come be famous with us and i thought it was going to be and that's the last time i saw julian casablancas and i was glad that she was like and he didn't want to do that yeah because he was like no i can't i'm I'm really fucking weird like but i think they did they did like, well they did drift part. yeah, yeah, yeah. They well, did drift apart naturally yeah. well i mean maybe he realized that maybe he listened to the multi finally i must get around to the multi-pages oh gee really this is who we have on tour with uh, we get that child manager it is good to have her perspective of uh the mythical england tour that was good yeah yeah, yeah that was cool she's like why why don't you want to be like what why maybe don't drink so much because you don't you want to remember this and they're like nope <laughs> that was a hell of a perspective wasn't it i was just like wow that that's like really wise and sensible but also if you're in that moment and you're young and you're like in another country it's got to be really hard not to just go fucking blitz right i mean like yeah but no, sure. I will say, I, I read... And I, you're signed to Rough Trade, and everyone's talking about you. Yeah, I thought him, like, from my Moldy Peaches uh, problems, I did think Kimmy Dawson was actually a very good anchor in the documentary. I thought she was actually, her perspective was very interesting, and she's, she's she is charismatic, you know, and she seems very winning, and, you know, I... I good sorry, karaoke singer. Good karaoke singer, yeah. But yeah. also, but yeah, but you, you are a singer. Like, you know, you are a professional <laughs> singer. Like, you have to be able to do... You know, like it should be a, a, a given that you're, you know, yeah. this is Jesse J on that talent show all over again, you know? Oh, God. Right. Right. So we get on talking about LCD senses when the James Murphy conundrum. Listen, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to sit back and watch you go. Cause <laughs> well, on last week's episode, I talked, literally talked to David Holmes um, about his album, Let's Get Killed. And around that time, so that's 1997. So he was hanging around New York and he was hanging around DFA. He was hanging around Tim Goldsworthy and uh, James Murphy. And there's some great quotes that come out of that time. First of all, David Holmes did what he wanted. He was playing techno or wherever else he was playing around the world, he was playing in New York a lot. And um, there was very much an Irish scene uh, in New York as well, a collection of people like Marcus Lampkin of Shit Robot who ended up on DFA Records um, and very instrumental to the DFA story. But David Holmes got involved with the DFA engineers originally, the two lads, James Worthy and Tim Goldsworthy. And I love the friction between the two of them. It's brilliant. And it's in the book as well. And it's just underscored here beautifully. There's a part where it's just like, so David Holmes is like, I want to make a record like Can because David Holmes is just a producer and, and a DJ. And he's like, I don't play an instrument. The, the studio is my instrument. That's what he says. And to J- James Murphy, this is absolutely the worst thing anyone could possibly ever say. Because <laughs> he's like, what? You want to be Khan? He's so angry about it. He's like, Khan lived, blah, blah, blah. They practice eight hours a day. They lived in a palace and all yeah, this shit. Yeah, he's castle like, or museum they, or something. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah, castle in Switzerland or something. <laughs> and they... Uh, they were in some sort of contemporary music school and all this shit. Yeah, you exactly. can't just they're, sample they're, your way They're the can. best of the best, like when it comes to like what they do and like classical musicianship and such. And he's like, that's not us. Yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of rubbing uh, of egos there and uh, different sensibilities more than anything else. But he, uh, James Murphy also does says that, says that LCD and DFA wouldn't happen without David Holmes, which is, I did ask him about last week. Um, he wasn't very forthcoming. <laughs> if you go back and hear it, he's a fairly Teflon answer in terms yeah, of- Yeah, he gave you the- uh, It is what know, it is. Yeah, the politician answer. Yeah. Um, but hang on, so the, the LCD census and story, I guess, you know, as well documented, but for anyone who doesn't know, it's basically that James Murphy was like, fuck this, I, I'm going to do it. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That was it. I mean, I think the thing is, James Murphy is self-aware enough to know that he's a bit of a perfectionist, a bit of a prick. <laughs> uh, and that works a lot of it for a lot of his music and his musical choice that he's made. Um, but 
it also probably rubbed people up the long way. And like as a student engineer who's like says he knows everything and says he knows the proper way to do things. So that's what happens with, uh, you know, the rapture when it comes to the rapture, because they make this record with the rapture mm-hmm. and it brings together disco and punk. And you're yeah, like, yeah, wow, yeah. Doesn't, nobody's ever done this before. But they kind of sit on it for a while because they don't have the business heads on them to to find a distribution for the record. And there is a really good, there's really good footage of the rapture looking really pissed off in an interview. Yeah, Luke, about, Luke Jenner, the front man. Yeah, he's like, uh, when is the album coming out? And he's real like, like he's got a sour face on They're him. deflated, yeah. Chewing wasps. He's like really annoyed. <laughs> and like, we've been playing these songs for a year. A we, year and a half. We can't put, yeah, yeah, that long, fuck me. I yeah. mean, and they were an interesting case as well because I remember seeing them in Enemy, Luke Jenner with his massive hair. And it was like, it's the disco strokes. And I was really glad to hear him use that phrase in this documentary when he talks about it as well. He goes, yeah, we're, you know, like we're, we're the disco strokes apparently. Because again, Clang, uh, I interviewed Luke Jenner years ago at a French music festival. And I was chatting to him. And of course I brought up the whole thing. And he was, he literally like, I, I was like, I remember when, like, you know, the whole buzz around you guys, when you guys signed or whatever, you know, you, I was like, it's the new strokes. And he was like, disco strokes. He's like, we were the disco strokes. And he was like, he goes, million dollar deal. It goes, never happened again. No one ever got a million dollar deal after us. I don't know if that's true, but it was a good line. He actually was very sweet and interesting to talk to. But um, yeah, they're a good band. And it was just this weird thing where like James Murphy and Tim Goldsworthy saw them play live. And it was classic. It was like them. We have to work with them. Let's fucking sign them. They're going to be our first act. It's going to be amazing. And it seems like it was all working. Yeah. But then the admin got in the way again. And James Murphy was just like, they had to like leave him. <laughs> yeah. And I guess he gave them the music, which I found surprising. Yeah. He must have given them everything because, I mean, he understood where they were coming from. Because that he, album did come out. Like, yeah. He was holding their career back. I think they, did they sign to Universal then after that? They signed to someone. Yeah. yeah. That must be when they got the million dollar deal. Because mm-hmm. like, yeah, the, the, enough hype, I guess, had been built. Yeah, it was one of the big ones. Anyway, and yeah, Echoes comes out. I want to say I remember. I do remember trying to download that. F- yeah, You're just online. as bad as the guy who downloaded the <laughs> Antics album three months early. Now, hey, listen, you are. I was waiting a year and a half for that album. <laughs> yeah, it's James Murphy's fault, in fairness. Yeah, but I, I did. Like, I mean, he is responsible for some of the best moments in this film for me personally. The haircuts from his early days, uh, for sure. Not a man who likes uh, a hairbrush. Yeah. No, no, not at all. And then uh, I love the part which it does explain. It like explains the origin story of the dance and rock together uh, with where he is at the David Holmes uh, like DJ set with all his pals and he spent a couple of weeks or a couple of months whatever every time someone's taken an, uh, a pill he's like how does it feel now studying how does yeah. it feel now <laughs> yeah so uh, in the film he says uh, well David Holmes says and Tim Goldsworthy both say actually that uh, he got clearance from his therapist to, to try it which is so good Phenomenal. but it just sums up the kind of person he is I'm gonna... and, and of course you know who that therapist is no uh, uh, the guy who in Someone Great, the guy from Someone Great. No the, way. The the subject of Someone Great. Yeah. You serious? That song is about his therapist. Yeah. I should have known this. I didn't yeah. know this. Uh, I was hoping it would be like Rick Rubin or something. Um, I am going to at my next therapy session, which will be this weekend when this podcast comes out. I'm just for the just for the laugh, just see how he reacts. <laughs> and I've got a good relationship with my therapist. I might just be like, Do I have your permission? To take drugs. <laughs> I suppose what he says. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, very good. And and I love the uh the fact like 
James is just like, okay, he's been asking how it is, how it feels. He's got permission from his therapist. He goes out and he buys 20 packs of juicy fruit chewing gum because he heard the people chew their jaw off themselves. <laughs> and then David Holmes uh, is given the signal and he drops tomorrow never knows by the Beatles. And you're like, yeah. And okay, there's footage where? of, is there footage of that exact moment? I don't know where that footage comes from. Because there's footage of him so dancing good. and looking like he is taking drugs for the first time and having yeah. this epiphany moment. But also a few people, and like the book, I think much more so, but a few people have said that they think that this is a hit piece and James Murphy. Do you think it is? No, I don't think so. Um, I didn't think it was that bad. I, I was kind of like, it's been, he comes across like a little bit of a clown. I, I, not, think, not I think there's there's some conflict there and that's sure, the sure. issue because there's people that actually hate him and there's people that he hates because they, he rubs people up the wrong way, clearly. He has, he knows his sheer bloody-mindedness uh, rubs people up the wrong way but it also is what creates Losing My Edge, for example, which is the first single that they ever did, which Tom, Tim Goals already goes, don't release this. I fucking hate this. He basically is like, you'll embarrass yourself. Yeah. I think that song fucking rules. But and I know does, it's but the it's most ironic like, song, but I, but I, no, I, it's I, brilliant. I love it's it. So yeah. Good. yeah, it's amazing. And he, but he was, I think people, but funny enough, the thing that uh, David Holmes or, or the James and David Holmes uh, robe up against, which is the like, you can't just sample your way to a hit or to what you want to do. He essentially does that mm -hmm. on Losing My Edge by uh, taking or paraphrasing, uh, interpolating uh, Killing Jokes song Change as that song. So he's obviously changed his mind. Maybe the drugs loosen him up a bit. He's like, yeah, fuck it. I'll do whatever I want. It's also, he got pissed off because the whole thing is like, he he, he talks about how, again, it's, it's Napster adjacent because it's like, uh, he was out in a club or something and he heard XYZ that he normally plays. And he's like, wait a minute. He's like, I've spent years and a lot of money buying those records, tracking those physical records down to play at my shows. And there's some kid over there with a laptop. How the fuck? And apparently he's like, where did you get this? And the guy was like, off the internet, man. Yeah. So he rebelled against that. He was like, that's not on. So that's where Losing My Edge comes from as well, or at least how the, yeah. that's how the film tells it. So there's, but there is, there's a righteous anger in that song about like, you know, and like, you know, the whole thing of starting a band in his mid to late 30s, thing, Nancy Wang is like, we're starting a band in our mid to late 30s. Who does that? That's absurd. <laughs> but to be fair, and like, look, LCD, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't even say I've got a love-hate relationship with them. I thought the last album was muck, but I saw them on tour. I thought that was an astonishing show. Yeah. They're I, great life. They're I prefer life. them being in the world, even if, yeah, okay, now he's doing a fucking NFT yacht thing or whatever. Whatever. It's like, i rather James Murphy out there doing things than not out there doing things. Yeah, yeah. And it is. I mean, deciding to start a band in your 30s is absurd. And it's also, it must have given him freedom and given everyone else in the band. Like, he describes Nancy Wang as his drinking buddy. Mm. That's all. Like, I mean, she was in the Wan McLean who released stuff on his label. They got some great stuff. <laughs> yeah. And there's loads of other, th actually, there's, in fairness, there's a few other acts on DFA, like Holy Ghost, for example, who did quite really good stuff and just aren't, aren't in the story. I understand why they're not in this story at all. But I think the kind of, that flashpoint of like, I've just had enough of being, I know I'm right. I'm just going to do it myself. <laughs> yeah. But like, in fairness, look what it led to. I'm like, yeah. do I love every LCD Senses song? No. But are they like one of the most, you know, interesting acts or at least successful in a way? Yeah. I mean, like, they have a place in fucking history. I'm dancing around the word iconic here because I hate that word. Yeah, look, they're one of my favorite bands. Yeah. That's no, there's no doubt about it. I do you mean, think, so like, do you, do you appreciate his prickishness? Like, is that like, does that, is that part, I think is that part of the to. cocktail for you? Like, is that like. Well, I mean, it's, it's something that when I found out he was, I was like, it makes sense. Mm. It explains a lot. It explains a lot about his obsession with fidelity, his obsession with, um, coffee <laughs> and, and natural wine and uh, all of the things that make LCD what it is because he's just like well I'm just going to play everything 
because that's what the that's what the recordings are. He just like he doesn't he does everything. Yeah, he really and he brings in the band, but the band really make it sing for me and like live. I saw them last summer, Brixton Academy, one of those reunion shows, one of those residency shows. It was incredible. It was so good. I remember uh, on 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 uh, on on my podcast, Noel, that we haven't talked about here. Are you? No, I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> <but> the, <laughs> no. Well, your reputation precedes you. Uh, <laughs> sorry, no. the sorry. No, it's been in the show notes for a while. The No Encore podcast. The No everybody. Encore podcast. Ages ago on that show. Yeah, Dave Hanratty's No Encore podcast. That's me. That's me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so, like, sorry. I'm a jerk. But years ago, uh, Mick Pope. Uh, I'll drop it in. Uh, speaking of jerks, no, I love Mick. Um, Mick Pope was on No Encore years ago. And I remember him talking about the Galaxy played whatever picnic that was. And LCD were on it. You must know you were there. LCD playing picnic the last yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. During the main stage, I main guess. Stage, yeah. I wasn't there. And I remember Mick saying that because I think he had a similar kind of conflicted journey with this band and I think he was like he said he said oh look you know he headed down after the galaxy set or whatever maybe they overlapped a little bit but he said he went down and he's like I'll check it out you know whatever I don't have that new album or or whatever happened at the time and he was kind of like yeah you know it's fine yeah it's grand like you know yeah this is you know I'm getting that nostalgia rush and the dopamine hits but you know it's all very whatever and he said that by the end of like New York I love you uh, you know you're bringing me down Mick was like don't ever end. <laughs> like he's fully like just like assumed into it. And I remember yeah. seeing them on that American Dream tour in the Olympia, and they played like a two-hour show. Mm. And I kind of was like, oh, you know, <laughs> good, good luck, LCD sense system trying to impress me. And like again, by the end of it, I was like, this is one of the greatest things I've ever experienced. Like, yeah, I was well, like I wow, <laughs> that's the attention to detail that um, somebody like James Murphy brings to things. Where where. For me, what I love about an LCD show is how they set up. They don't set up like a regular band. They set up like they're in a studio. Yeah, yeah. They set up around each other awkwardly. It doesn't make sense. Um, obviously, a huge disco ball always helps. Um, and they do a great thing where like it's like a disco ball drop during uh, Getting Oculus. And, and oh, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. So oh, I'm, I, I'm just Us like, versus them, actually. Us versus them. Even thinking now, I'm like, oh, God, I need to see them again. Yeah. I need but that's them it. Again. They're like one of my favorite bands to see. And even though... Yeah, they have a few duds here and there, but like overall, the intention is is uh, is sustains itself for me. I think. It's, do we know? I, I, I know I'm splitting off documentary for just a second. I'll go back to it. But like, do we know the current state of play with Tim Goldsworthy and him? Are they just? I don't. For, they're not friends. Forever done. Like there was, there was a story about last year about uh, James being an arsehole again <laughs> to a fellow <laughs> to one of the DFA co-founders or something or somebody. Jonathan Galkin, who now started a new label called Four Four Records, who followed me on Twitter last week. Wow! <laughs> so I'm like, okay, um, <laughs> he's out on his own now. But he something about being locked out of the studio and stuff oh, like that, wonderful. not being able to pick up his thing. It was all very public on Pitchfork and in but on the on, on the documentary, like I kind of went into it, like almost expecting, like, and even hearing, they were like, "Oh, it's a real fucking drive by on James Murphy," and I was like, eh, "I think the book is the, the bigger drive by." Yeah, if I anything, mean, you know, I think. I mean, you should watch uh, "Shut Up and Play the Hits" because he he kind of gives. He he's not the nicest person. No, and he's he, he's he's weary in himself about everything, and he overthinks everything, and that's fine. But that makes great for great art. But it also makes sometimes that he means he's actually an arsehole to everybody and some people. So, did you um like book versus film for a second? Did you feel like like I I was like I know that you're covering the same scene and the same time, and you know, but you've new footage and you've new interviews. I'm like, 
I don't know if you need to call Mimi in the bathroom. <laughs> like, it felt very disconnected. There are some, I, I did look back at the book this week and there are some direct. There are, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I that, haven't read it since it came out. That whole David Holmes, um, James Murphy doing drugs section is full on. Word for word. Yeah. And like, in fairness, like it does, it, it does say at the end, based on the book by Lizzie Gubbin, I'm sure yeah. she gave the, the nod. But I just found myself being like, this could just be another documentary about the scene. Like, you know, and also like yeah. for a book that begins with like such a lengthy, background on the band Jonathan Fire Eater and how that led to the Walkmen. Neither of those bands get mentioned once in this yeah. documentary. Vampire Weekend don't get mentioned. Yeah. The National are maybe less expected to be, but I mean, they are a New York band. Yeah, in, yeah. In, in I guess it's just, you know, we can there. only focus on so many, but like, I, I felt that it was and maybe that's a good thing. Like, like it feels like yeah, a, well, you, a if, companion piece. If you so. try and do everything, you, you just end up doing nothing, you know? So I think it's, it does enough, I mean, it's meaty enough with those main bands <laughs> the Mulder Beaches, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sinterpol, uh, The Strokes, uh, LCD, and uh, Ryan Adams. Um, yeah. Every, every hero needs a villain. So It kind of um, runs out of steam as well. It kind of just like, it's like, and that's it, everyone. Like, Yeah, it, the film finishes with the gentrification of Brooklyn, um, which, you know, I remember going there around, what, 2007? And going around, being in Brooklyn, hearing about it. It was, it was that buzzy time where, Loads of films were shot there, and it was like, "What is this place like?" And it was cool. It was nice. It was, but it was also run down. And I remember seeing uh, Alex Turner hanging around, you know, oh, wow. on the street. You're like, "Oh yeah, this is like full of cool people." All right, I get it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what happens. These old places. I know. I was listening to a podcast with Lizzie Goldman actually, just in preparation for this, and she was talking about how Dave Satek from um, TV on the Radio. Uh, he lived there in Brooklyn his entire life and he lived there with his, his studio was there and he lived there because it was so cheap. He said he no longer lives there because his studio is now a Gap store. So, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so that's where we're at now <laughs> uh, in terms of, but that's what, that's a natural end to things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think the only other thing that I noticed in the film, which is, uh, which was interesting to me, but, and it makes more sense because, because it's a kind of nerd, music nerd that James Murphy is. He He's the only one in the film who really talks about his influences or any kind of music making or songwriting or anything like that. Nobody else really discusses that in the film. Which no, is, yeah. So just, just an interesting point to note. But yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the film has to end at the time it does. It is, there is no end point to a scene really, is there? Like, I mean, it just, be, it things... It lasted for a long time. If you're, if you're looking at it that way, those bands have sustained themselves pretty well. Um... Is there anything the film misses? Uh, well, I think aforementioned acts like Jonathan Fire during The Walkman, especially because the book was so, I guess, just like foundational with how it approached them. And I did like when Vampire Weekend turned up in the book because it was so funny because they came along when it's like, here's the Strokes being dicks. Here's James Murphy being an asshole. And then here's Vampire Weekend being like, hello, we're shy and awkward. And uh, <laughs> do you mind if we join in and, you know, like play some songs and stuff. And it's just bizarrely wholesome contrast. Yeah. Um, did it miss anything? I don't know. I mean, like it's, it's a tough one because like, I've never made a fucking documentary. I'd love to, of course, but I don't know. I wouldn't know the first place to start. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of work goes into this kind of stuff. The, the archival footage is such a huge element to it. Um, I mean, like, like I, I didn't miss the fact that, you know, there was no, like, let's cut to talking head in their house, which we yeah. get a million yeah. times, which I'm fine with. I have nothing against that concept. And I did think that actually, the use of audio over archival footage while not necessarily just doing the as if Capadia thing. I thought it was quite effective. Um, did it miss anything? No, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's fair to say that it missed anything. Not, not that you're saying that, but like, I think it's more that like at a certain point you, you can't help but be confronted by the fact that all of this was glamour. 
all of this was magic. All of this was so of a time. And your nostalgia will obviously train your brain to perceive this in a certain way. Even now, watching it 20 years later, you can't help but look back on those times and who you were as a person and how it all felt so much more innocent. That's a natural kind of, I think, not a problem, but it's a natural kind of point that you will arrive at watching this. And at a certain point, it does wear off. You do find yourself going, well, you know, that was then, this is now, I am older, yada, yada. (laughs) And so end credits, you know, it's like, I think it's admirable. I think it is surface level though, but also, you know, I'm not sure what else I would have done with it. Yeah. And I kind of thought that's how it would be. The book was the same. The book was the same. I was like, this is a good book. I'm enjoying it. But at a certain point, uh, you have said all you can say. Yeah. I mean, the, the meet me in the bathroom and the scene and the New York scene is part of, you know, we talked last year, I had Louise McCherry on the podcast. Uh, myself and Andrea had uh, Louise McCherry on the podcast to talk about Indie Sleeves. Indie Sleeves. Yeah, yeah. Which is like a wider Venn diagram of what this is, because it's like that encompasses the online uh, nature of, of music fandom at that time, whether it's like people like myself and blogs and like you said, it, the people in that book in the modern You're age, much cooler you know, than like, Lizzie Goodman's friends and all. No, please please no. don't think that that was a hey, shot. Hey, Maggie, Maggie Rogers edited uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom as well, didn't she? She has an intro. Oh, she did, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and I've interviewed her as well, so there, there you go. go. There um, but no, Bing. no. <laughs> <laughs> the Nile Nine uh, has always been a separate, you know, yeah, the yeah. Nile Nine, the Nine Snails. <laughs> but no, I mean, the Indie Sleeves thing and there is, I think that is an interesting to ponder as well. Um, just you know, the idea of we're all consuming this, these, this, the photographs of, of parties in Brooklyn and LA and all that kind of stuff. It's a wider part of which obviously the film doesn't cover, doesn't need to cover, but uh, I have been thinking about it a lot because, spoiler alert, I am going to put on some sort of indie sleaze night in the Workman's Cellar. Holy shit. On April 7th. Good Friday. I'm putting one on. I'm, I'm there. On. I'm absolutely yeah. there. Because I was just going to say, I like, like, I mean, I was never cool enough for these parties and like, you know, you look at it from not only just thousands of miles away, but you're like, I, I, there's no fucking way I'd be cool enough to hang out with the Strokes and the AES, even in their infancy. Yeah. So you did it from afar. So yeah, and it is like, you know, like, the whole thing is couched in a certain level of the self and, you know, the wider pop culture thing. And like, it was such an escape, I think, as well for, for even like for fucking, you know, me and Drogheda, like, you know, just yeah, buying I the mean, magazines even- every week and listening to these albums and such. And, and then finally also going back and appreciating them slightly later than when I should have, quote unquote, you yeah. know. It's like uh, we we had antics and crowd out of years and the club night, but I didn't go that much because... We weren't really into that exactly at that point, and my yeah, friends yeah. weren't. You know what I mean? So, like, I had heard about it. Maybe I was even a bit older. It was a Italo disco only for you. <laughs> no, not then, not then. No, <laughs> no, no. But Dave Hanratty of the No Encore Podcast. That's me. Uh, you are. Um, by the time uh, this episode is out, you will have a, an episode touching on some of this. Yeah, well. yeah, that's right. Um, if you have never heard the No Encore Podcast, please listen to it. How the fuck is that possible? I'm sure it's very possible. Um, I'm sure lots of people. No, not with our listenership. Maybe not. Yeah, Niall, of course, was on the show not so long ago. We did a quiz. Oh, was, you had to bring it. It was up. a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. You're welcome back anytime. Of course. No. Um. Yes. We the Fire current. Scene. I think when this comes didn't out, didn't have my wheelbase that morning. <laughs> you were very close. the The current episode of No Encore that should be out by the time this comes out is uh, top five songs from 2001, best and worst. So that's in in honor of uh, this documentary and on this podcast as well. So. Yeah, if you've never heard the No Encore show, it's usually a weekly show. It'll be changing uh, in the near future because I'm still kind of figuring out what I'm doing with it. But, you know, it's a regular enough show and it's full of top five themed things and a lighthearted look at the music news of the world and all kinds of in-jokes and such. So, um, and yeah, listen, you know, as uh, from one podcast rival to another, it's uh, it's nice to break bread here. <laughs> yeah, you know? 
This isn't your first time on the Dynamite No, but it's a slightly less chaotic time than the last time. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. We had a special guest. The only special guest we have is a cat who's uh, on top of the record player or record uh, bag up here. Shockingly well behaved considering uh, what what I thought was going to happen when the cat climbed over me uh, en route to the top of those lovely shelves of yours with your vinyl everywhere. He was into you. He was into you. He he had a sniff of you. What can I say? Um, Yeah, no, like, thank you very much for having me. Um, It's it's been an awful lot of fun. And uh, and I will say, like, you know, I I will say, like, you know, I, I think you know if you've any connection whatsoever to this music scene or even any vague interest in it it's a perfectly good documentary for that it's not going to change your life it's no metallica yeah. some kind of monster it's no bros after the screaming stops Look, but it, what what is what uh, is <laughs> i think both those are still on netflix by the way but it's good like, like it was fine I mean, also yeah sorry you saw it on the cinema i was supposed to go i was the one who pulled out the discord thing last minute because I'm, 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 I'm a terrible person but um yes you are what was it like in the cinema was it, was yeah there, i mean that was actually great i mean the sound was good really good and uh you know it was a uh, lighthouse screen one. It doesn't get much better than that for me, really. All right. Know. Free passes for life there, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't had some bad experiences in cinemas recently. Uh, Have you? Uh, yeah, I told you about the my screen cinema one. My Savoy cinema one. Remind Experience me. Experience of retire. Uh, don't go uh, I don't want to say don't go to the Savoy but if you are going to go to the Savoy be aware that they have very bright LED lights and uh, yes. creaky noises. Yeah. Creaky uh, seats. Um, at my experience, dark, dark, dark screens and uh, poor sound. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, all the things you don't really want when you go to cinema. That is a, yeah. I, I, no, no, no disrespect to the Savoy. I will now take you apart piece by piece. Yeah, I've had some fucked up experience in the cinema, but you know, it's a, uh, you know, it, it's an adventure every time. So. Yeah, it, it certainly is. It certainly is. Well, that was meet me in the bathroom. Yeah, like I said, um, hasn't been announced yet, but it maybe will by the time you hear this. Um. Doing an indie sleaze night in uh, Workman's on Good Friday for the crack. I feel like Good Friday is a good night for the people of the age group that I'm, <laughs> who, who want to have a hangover on a, on a Saturday and still want to be okay for the Monday. So sorry, can Tuesday. I like what, can I ask what this entails? I assume yeah, great so music, but we'll also we'll be, you know. be playing music of the era from uh, New York and indie 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 rock and indie of the time but also kind of some of the remix stuff that you would have heard around that time so the blog house stuff even like we're talking like could copy in a track and some of that stuff as well there's loads of bits in there will you play because uh, this will feature on this will have featured on the no honker episode at some point will you play the incredible mashup of genie in a bottle by Christina aguilera oh do you know what hard I, to explain I, I where the downloaded that very recently oh it's the best and uh <laughs> i have been priming that for playing at some point phenomenal yeah yeah so we yeah, play lose my edge we'll, we'll lose my edge get a spin. oh we'll have to yeah like we're talking tv on the radio rapture <sighs> interpol all the stuff that's in the film Bit of New Young Pony Club, I'm sure. Hot Chip, MIA, The Hives. This is going to fucking Vampire rule. Vampire Weekend. M- Mike Snow? Do you remember I, them? Yes, Animal? <laughs> yes, yeah. Animal. Yeah, yeah, a few of them, maybe. Anyway, there were some things I wrote down. Mastercraft, who did a lot of remixes around that time. And some of them I still listen to. Um, and The Kills as well. Do you remember The Kills? The, yeah, yeah, they were the hip cool around. band with... Uh, they were too cool. Yeah. Who was in that? It's not... Kate Moss, no, is it? No, but the guy was married or went out with maybe, Kate Moss, yeah, I think yeah. It was. They were too cool for me. Yeah, too cool yeah. for me. Well, that's the indie sleaze night. That's um, Good Friday, April seventh, uh, at the Workman's Cellar. Um, tickets will be on Eventbrite anyway. Uh, so I'll, 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 there'll be more details about that. Hopefully. By the time this is out, maybe not, but if not, you'll find it on nonline.com. Uh, Dave Hanready, thanks so much for coming in. Um, and good to have you in the gaff as yeah, well. Thank you. I um, love go this. listen to No Encore. Uh, he's always very good at uh, 
Dave is always very good at, at uh, shouting us out. I'm less good at it, but it's you're, okay. You're literally in the room. It's all right. So, you know, no, no, I don't uh, keep a record of these things. Ah, uh, you do. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, if if Nine Nine was a was an in, was a 2001 era New York uh, band pod, like like who is the equivalent? Like like are you? Who am I to you? And like 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 am I? You know, oh. my more Interpol. You know, kind of mm. fastidious and I'd probably, shy. I'd probably be the nerdy James Murphy. That's why I maybe identify with him. Maybe. Can I be TV on the radio? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. everyone likes TV on the radio. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't piss anyone off. Hey. Uh, that, I once I, had Kip Malone stay in my apartment. No fucking way. Yeah. How did we not open with that? <laughs> I for, completely forgot. What was that like? <laughs> Do you remember when the Ash Cloud happened? Yeah. In, I, was yeah. Supposed, I was supposed to see LC Sinister in Tripod yeah. and they cancelled. Yeah. 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 So they enhanced. And I think TV on the radio were supposed to be sporting. At that gig? Yeah. But they that were already. It it, but it, no, sorry. It wasn't TV on the radio. It was Kip Malone's band Rain Machine. Right, so Rain Machine were on, on tour in Europe and they came to Dublin and at the time State Magazine was gone, right? And we had, there was a night in the Mercantile that happened and somehow, well, I, okay, I know this happened. We had a, we had a night of free bands. I think the likes of the cast of Cheers maybe around that time was was happening. Uh, and I asked, I went to see, went to see Rain Machine in Whelan's, I believe, right? And they had a full band and everything. And, and I met Kip Malone at South by Southwest briefly and then i met him again and i don't know why but oh sorry no scratch that i remember what happened right so whelan's happens watching a man unfurl in front of me here this is great yeah, i'm trying to remember everything uh <laughs> whelan's happens they played a gig in whelan's and the ash cloud happens like that day and they're like we don't know what we're going to do so myself and my partner at the time had an apartment in smithfield and we were like why don't we just invite the band over to for dinner so they can hang out because at that time we were like Bands are on tour, never get to hang out in an apartment or somebody's whatever, their friend's place. And they're nice to feel grounded, all this stuff. And they knew they were going to be here for a few days. So we invited them over, made them dinner. And uh, it was like three or four of the band, four of the band maybe. And had a nice night with them. Just like very, very innocent, nothing mad. Maybe went to the pub, something like that. Um, and then... As part of that, we had one of those gigs in the Mercantile where it was like, uh, oh yeah, uh, do you want to come play a few tunes? And he totally did. He was like, yeah, sure. He played like eight songs. Nice. Uh, just him on his guitar. So, um, and then I met him at South by West the following year on the street. <laughs> and I remember he, I remember his, his only, I mean, the only thing I remember was I was eating a uh, fish po' boy because uh, it was late after seeing all the bands. It was late and he was walking home from where he was staying. And I remember him telling me about Sharon Van Etten. He's like, my friend Sharon Van Etten, you should check her out. I was like, sure I will. And then I completely <laughs> forgot about it until maybe two or three years later. I was like, oh, there's somebody called Sharon Van Etten that I've heard about recently. Hmm, heard about this name before. So anyway, that's my, your that's my Kip Malone. Yeah, your connection to this scene runs deeper than, than any of us could have thought. Unfortunately, not enough TV on the radio. Great band. Phenomenal. I must go back and listen to that. Phenomenal. Uh, listen to Dear Science, everybody, if Dear you never Science. have. Yeah. And also Return to Cookie Mountain. They're a phenomenal band. They're they great. Are. They are indeed. All right. I better okay, go. Dave, thanks so much. Thank you. That's been the Nile and Nine podcast. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye.